evening, everybody. My name's Norman Fisher, and I'm a Zen priest. I live in Muir Beach, and I apologize for being late, but uh, there was really a lot of traffic. Maybe some of you got stuck in that traffic. Something must have happened on the bridge, on the Richmond Bridge, because the traffic from um, the Stinson Beach exit all the way up to Richmond Bridge was bumper to bumper. It took me uh, 50 minutes to drive that five miles. And uh, so, you know, one complains about the traffic and so on, but uh, usually there's an accident, right? So uh, hopefully nobody was hurt. Once I was in the worst traffic jam I was ever in in my life, uh, going across the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, finally got home, and it turned out that one of the members of our Green Gulch community had been uh, in, in an accident on the, on the Golden Gate Bridge, a really serious one that uh, made her, uh, she, she still can't walk. So now whenever I'm in a bad traffic jam, that's what I realized. Probably there was an accident. But once I got past the Richmond Bridge uh, place, then it was very easy. So, pleasant drive. But it seemed like you were all fine without me. <laughs> Meditating, you don't need somebody to tell you how to meditate, just sit, breathe, pretty easy, pretty, pretty self-sufficient. Uh, well, uh, first, I would like to say a word about posture. Uh, the posture that we take when we're sitting, standing, walking, uh, is actually really important. Uh, maybe, you'd, maybe you didn't realize that the word attitude actually means posture. You take an attitude uh, with your body, uh, with your mind, with your spirit. An attitude is the way we hold ourselves. Uh, in any moment of your life, you have some attitude. And that attitude is going to condition and shape the way you receive and hold what happens in that moment. And that attitude is literally uh, in the body. You're expressing uh, the attitude of your heart and mind in the body, and, and when you change the attitude of the body, also it changes the attitude of the heart and mind. So it's a good idea to pay attention to your attitude. Not just uh, assume your attitude as a given, but study it closely. And that's why when you sit down in meditation, uh, don't just sit there like an ordinary, unenlightened person. <laughs> you should sit there uh, just like a Buddha. That's the whole idea, right? You're changing your attitude to have a Buddha attitude. So you don't want to just slouch around like an ordinary, unenlightened person. <laughs> so when you sit down, you, you should feel the top of your head. You should feel it lifting up toward the sky. 
but then you should tuck your chin in a little bit so that you're a level-headed Buddha. And then uh, if you rotate your uh, pelvis slightly forward, which will arch your back uh, slightly inward, and this allows your whole spine uh, to lengthen and open. So this is not imposing an upright posture on yourself as a kind of religious discipline. No, it's not an imposition. On the other hand, it's no good to just slouch around in the usual taking yourself for granted way. Instead, the feeling of it is that you're, uh, you are allowing your body, you're letting it be uplifted from within. You're not preventing that as you usually do without realizing it. You're letting your body be uplifted from within. You're letting that happen. You're letting your body assume its dignified human posture. And then, if you get used to that and you practice that regularly, you will have an attitude of dignity and nobility no matter what's going on. You'll receive it uh, with that attitude. And the Buddha actually used that word. He used the word uh, nobility. Before the Buddha used it, people thought that the word referred to individuals of a certain class or a certain uh, birth. You know, the nobility were certain people. But uh, what was radical about the Buddha is that he didn't think that the nobility were certain uh, chosen people. He thought that awakening is human nobility and that everyone possesses it. And that it's in the body. It's actually in the body, waiting to be released. So when you sit in meditation, you know, think about this. And study it in your body. And see if you can be surprised all of a sudden while you're sitting there. Uh, in the way that your body will just open up. Uh, just like a flower opening up. Maybe one day in meditation you'll be surprised and you'll feel your body opening up. It's not the regular body anymore. It's a Buddha body. In Zen, you know, we sit uh, with our hands uh, in our laps. Um, the left, uh, back of the left hand uh, resting in the palm of the right hand. And then the thumb tips just touching. So we use that mudra uh, in Zen. And uh, one Zen teacher, Kazan, gave meditation instruction and he said, put your mind in the palm of your hand. And when you're meditating, uh, put your mind in the palm of your hand. So that's a good thing to try, uh, sitting with your mind, not spinning around in your mind, but your mind in the palm of your hand. And then paying close attention, especially to the very delicate way that the thumb tips are just touching when you're uh, using the mudra. It's very subtle, 
and delicate the way the thumb tips just touch not too pressing and not falling apart from one another but just delicately beautifully touching so that's a kind of a zen style of meditation and you can try it sometime and maybe you'll find that it's a good practice anyway uh, that's the end of my speech uh, about posture now I want to tell you about my new car So recently, uh, like many of you, I got a new car a few years ago. And uh, it's a hybrid car because uh, it was seeming increasingly stupid to me that you could have a car that would get 15 or 20 uh, miles a gallon of gasoline. This just seemed like it didn't make any sense. How could a car only go 15 or 20 miles on one gallon of this precious rare fuel? It didn't seem right. So I said, enough of this. And I got a hybrid car, which uh, does much better on gasoline. So now I can get 40 or 45 uh, miles to a gallon of gasoline. And I'm very happy about this. But I've, d I've learned that my car uh, is obsessed with how many miles a gallon it gets. <laughs> and it has a computer that is constantly uh, measuring how much gas mileage the car is getting. So this makes uh, driving a whole other different thing. Now one thing I've never been able to get used to with computers and other gadgets like this that measure things or program things is there's only maybe one or two buttons. And yet those one or two buttons can do a million different things. I've never gotten used to this. One time I tried to program my, my telephone, an ordinary landline telephone. And honestly, I spent quite a while and I couldn't figure out how to do it. Because uh, one button would do different things. Sometimes it would do this and sometimes it would do that and I could never figure out, you know, what it, wh why? Why would it change its mind like that? Sometimes this button would control the answering machine. Sometimes the same button would control the ringtone. I have a great choice of many ringtones I could choose. Sometimes it would be something else. Somehow, it depends on the sequence in which you punch buttons. Or in some cases, it depends on how long you hold the button down. This is who would have guessed, you know. But <laughs> the same button, you hold it down a little longer, and now it's a different thing altogether. Now, I grew up uh, imagining that each thing was only itself. <laughs> but now it turns out that each thing is actually many things. 
according to a complicated system of hyperlinks. <laughs> and nobody really has that figured out yet. So anyway, my car's computer is like this. I've been driving this car now for two years, and so far, uh, for all this time, I could never figure out how to compute what the gas mileage is for one trip. The car was only computing the total gas mileage for the total amount of time that I've been driving the car, but I knew there must be some way that if I wanted to figure out what kind of gas mileage I was getting for a specific trip, there must be a way of doing this. But I pushed all the buttons and I couldn't figure it out. But the other day I was going to the airport and I was punching buttons, you know, somehow I pushed a button that I never pushed before or in a sequence I didn't push before. I held it down in a different way than I did. But anyway, all of a sudden it popped up on the screen a way to compute the mileage just for that trip. So driving to the airport, I was seeing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis how much gas mileage I was getting. And this was really exciting. <laughs> but also, it was quite emotionally trying. <laughs> because if I'm driving along to the airport and I'm coasting downhill, I'm getting fantastic gas mileage. Really, I'm getting more than 100 miles a gallon of gas mileage. And if I'm coasting like that, getting more than 100 miles of ga a gallon of gasoline for a few minutes, it's having a big impact on the total mileage for that trip, right? So the total mileage for that trip is popping up, and I'm becoming really happy about this. But there's a steep grade uh, between my house and the airport. And when I'm climbing up that steep grade, the mileage drops way low, having a negative impact on my total mileage for that trip. And that's upsetting. But of course, yeah, and of course, the thing you want to do is, like, don't go up that hill. <laughs> Can you avoid it somehow? But the hill is on the way. You know, you really can't do that, can you? So you have to go up the hill. And then it has a bad impact on your mileage, and, you, and you're sad. So my drive to the airport the other day was really exciting and very emotional. And the reason why was just that my computer was informing me on a moment-by-moment -moment basis of exactly how I was doing. <laughs> and I realized that my reactions to how I was doing were always off. Because as soon as I reacted to how I was doing, it was different. Right away, it was, in the next minute, it was totally different. So I was always reacting to something that a situation that was already passed, and now I was in a new situation. So the minute I would rejoice, oh, look at that gas mileage. The next minute it would be, oh, no, 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 I'm losing that great, I had such great <laughs> mileage and now I'm losing it. So I was in a very fluid situation. 
Another thing, uh, the computer in the car uh, has a function, it says range. It tells you the car's range, which means how many more miles you are able to drive on the amount of gas that you now have in the tank. And again, it turns out that the computer is constantly recalibrating this. So at first it was a little bit shocking to me because uh, the car said, your range is 250 miles. You can go 250 more miles. So I'm driving along and driving along and punching buttons and then that disappears, that screen disappears and then later on it comes back. I've, I've gone five miles and now the screen comes back. So you think, well, okay, you can drive 450, 250 more miles. You just drove five miles. Now you can drive 245 miles, right? You would think, but no, no. <laughs> now it says you can drive 270 more miles. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how can that be? How can that be? But then I realized that there is no actual number of miles that I can go. Because the number keeps changing according to the way I'm driving now and the conditions under which I'm driving now. So the computer, as any good computer will do, is predicting the future with tremendous precision based on the facts of the present. But since the facts of the present are constantly changing, minute by minute, according to conditions, as the present becomes the future, The new future, the future future, which is embedded in the present, also keeps changing, right? So, who needs Buddhist scriptures? <laughs> I've got all the Dharma teachings I need from my, my car. And, and it's a really persuasive teacher. And it's telling me that the closer you look at what's happening, the more slippery things get. And your reactions to what's going on are always off. And the more you look and the more measurements you make, the clearer it becomes that you can't actually tell what's going on. <laughs> and that all the measurements are a little off and a little late. And the conceptual mind, which is our personal computer that's telling us all the time what's going on, is in comparison with the slippery, subtle, reality that we're living, a pretty blunt instrument. And it doesn't take a lot of thinking about it to realize this. Almost all of your problems, minor and major, 
are based on a whole set of concepts and ideas that simply do not actually describe the reality you're living in the way that you think they do. I mean, this is a shocking fact, but it seems to be true just on an everyday basis. You are not the person that you think you are. And your life is not the life that you think you're living. And this is actually the truth. This is not like religion, some like doctrine proposed by someone. This is just everyday truth. And if you pay attention, you'll notice this. You'll see that this is true. Now, of course, you won't see this in the way that you think you'll see it or the way you would like to see it. In other words, you won't say all of a sudden one day, Aha! Now I see! Now I understand. No, it won't be that way. And even if you did say that one day and you did think you saw it, it wouldn't be it. And that insight would not make much difference. Because the way that reality is not the way you think it is, is in your body. It's in your posture. It's in your seeing. It's in your hearing. It's in your tasting. It's in your moving. It's in your feeling. It's in your emotion. But it's not the content of your thought or the content of your perception or emotion. It's the process. It's the flow of your thinking and your feeling and your seeing and so on the flow of the experience of your physical body. It's not an object of thought or knowledge. It's the flow of your experience. So you can't know it the way you can know, you know, algebra or know literature as an object of your mind. But you can experience it, you can live it. And most of all, you can appreciate it. And it can uh, liberate your life. And it will liberate your life if you uh, just continue to devote yourself to your practice and keep on sitting. However, your usual stupid, clunky, thoughts will probably yammer on for some time to come despite this. Which is fine. It's normal. It's fine as long as you don't believe your thoughts too much and think that this endless succession of thoughts is actually describing the reality you're living. It's not. So don't, don't believe your thoughts that much. They come and they go. You can think of your thoughts and your usual emotional habits as your pet. It will make a mess from time to time. And uh, it may be, from time to time, difficult to train. But with persistence 
and patience and gentleness and love, probably it's trainable. And, uh, of course, quite lovable. Your unruly mind is quite lovable. Okay, now I want to tell you as a little Zen story. This is a story from the classical uh, period in China, the Tang Dynasty. As you may know, almost all of the old Chinese Zen stories are about male monastics. And this is very odd when you think about it, since uh, in the present day and throughout history, no doubt, women have had at least as much and probably a lot more religious interest and talent as men do. So probably in ancient times, just like now, there were as many women practitioners as men and probably there were more. So it is very curious and odd and bizarre that almost all the stories are about men. Don't you think so? I wonder how that happened. Anyway, this is not a story about a man. This is a story about a woman. Now, there are some Zen stories about women, but most of those stories are about women whose names we don't know. They're usually called in the stories the old tea lady (laughs) or the old woman, you know, by the side of the road. Somehow, the women are usually old. I don't know why. So this story is very special because the woman in this story actually has a name. And she herself is a monastic. And her name is Iron Grindstone Lou. That's her name. Iron Grindstone Lou. Uh, Lou Tiemo. Iron Grindstone Lou. And as her name indicates, she was famous for being very tough and very sharp. Uh, we have the expression sharp as a tack. But the grindstone was the grindstone that sharpens the tack. She set off sparks and ground off dullness uh, in everybody who came to meet her. And she was a disciple of Guishan. And they were very close. She was one of his five leading disciples, when you look at the Zen genealogy charts, her name is always listed in the generation after Guishan. And this story takes place uh, sometime after she finished her formal training in the monastery. And she was living probably in a hut, a hermitage, somewhere nearby where Guishan was living. And uh, Guishan was pretty old at this time, and she presumably was somewhat younger. So one day she hiked over uh, to visit Guishan. And when she appeared, Guishan said to her, Old cow, so you've come. And she said to him, Tomorrow on Mount Tai, There's a big gathering and a feast. Are you going, teacher? 
And Guishan lay down and took a nap. And the iron grindstone Lou left, went home. That's the story. That's it. So this is a wonderful story to me. I really like this story. And there's only, sometimes there are little esoteric uh, details you need to know to appreciate the story. There's only one detail in this story that is important to know, and that is that Mount Tai, the mountain that she's talking about, is about, uh, which is an important uh, sacred Buddhist site where they would have big, big, big gatherings and festivals and feasts. Mount Tai is about 600 miles from where they are. So... Now, you could go. Somebody said, you want to go to L.A., there's a special art opening there. You could say, yeah, I'll go, and you can get there you know, the next day. But in, in this time, in China, there was no way. You could possibly get to Mount Tai tomorrow if it's 600 miles away. So that's one thing, a fact, you need to know to really appreciate uh, the story. Guishan is a wonderful Zen teacher, and I always quote him when somebody asks me, as often happens, what is the Zen uh, teaching about reincarnation? Does Zen believe in reincarnation? What do, you, what do you think about it? What does Zen say about that? So I always tell them the story of Guishan, who once said to his disciples, after I die, I will be reborn as a water buffalo on the hillside. And you will know it's me because the buffalo will have emblazoned on its side the Chinese characters Gui Shan. <laughs> if you say it's a water buffalo, you'll be wrong. If you say it's Guishan, you'll also be wrong. What is it? So when anybody asks me about reincarnation, I always quote that story. And and it sounds, uh, when you first hear it, a little bit like a joke or a trick. But it's not. It's actually really a, a very short and very clever way of saying something that's very, very true and also really important. If you say at any given moment that you get 42.4 miles a gallon, you'll be wrong. If you say you don't get 42.4 miles a gallon, you'll also be wrong. And yet, you have to drive your car. And the way to drive your car is not to be so stuck on things conforming to your need for definitiveness and to the crudeness of your conceptions. Instead, you know, open up your eyes, open up your heart, open up your mind, and notice that things are just the way they appear to be, And also they're not. They're also much more than that. 
once you really appreciate that and realize that that's always the way it is, you're going to live differently. You're going to feel differently about life. You're going to have a lot more happiness and a lot more fun. And a lot of what bothers you is just not going to bother you anymore. So, back to the original story. The story within a story. Now we get back to the original story. When Guishan says to her, So, old cow, he's probably talking about a water buffalo, which is the most common beast, you know, in those days in China. Every household had one, and still in the countryside, every household has one. And it was Guishan's image of his own mind, of his own essential identity. So, when he says to her, so, old cow, you've come, he probably means, so, old water buffalo, meaning, so, old my mind, so, old Buddha, so, old dear one, so, old me, myself, my heart. It's probably a, a wonderful, beautiful thing that he's saying to her, very dear and intimate. And when he says, you've come, this also means more than it sounds like. And this is always the way with these old Chinese Zen masters. They use very plain and ordinary words to mean very plain and ordinary things and also more than that. You've come refers to one of the names of Buddha, one of the epithets of Buddha. Tathagata is one of the names of Buddha. And Tathagata literally means the one who thus comes and thus goes. And this is how every moment actually arises. It comes, goes. In thusness. In suchness. Everything comes, goes in a luminous, miraculous, dreamlike appearance that is self-liberating on each occasion. And that's why the Buddha is called that, Tathagata, thus coming, thus going. Probably, Guishan was just hanging around his hermitage, and then he looked up, and there she was, the dear and the formidable grindstone. And he probably thought at first, well, is she actually there? Is this some kind of dream? Yes, she's actually there. Yes, this is some kind of dream. And so he said, ah, you've come. Now she tells him about a wonderful feast that he could not possibly attend and says, are you going to the feast? And he answers her by stretching out and taking a nap. And she responds to him by 
going on a hike back home. He's an old guy. Old guys take naps. She's younger and more vigorous. She hikes. The place where the feast is celebrated. The actual sacred Mount Tai is not really 600 miles away. It's right here in your body, right now as you breathe. And even when you are there, 600 miles away on Mount Tai, at that feast, the truth is you're in exactly the same place, right here uh, in your body now as you breathe. Because everything is complete. Every problem is solved or not solved. Right now, right here, where you are, where you have always been, where you will always be, in a past, present, and future that's constantly being recalibrated and that defies all your concepts and desires in its utter uh, strangeness, ineffability, and perfection. Think of all the suffering that you have endured in your life, wanting things to be other than what they were. Whether it was something outside you or something inside you. Think of how hard it was because you wanted to be otherwise and it just wasn't going to be otherwise. Think of how convinced you have been that some external or internal situation was absolutely terrible, totally painful, and completely unacceptable. You desperately wanted to go to Mount Tai, but it was just too far away for you to get there. And you were so full of regret and anguish, but there was absolutely nothing that you could do. Guishan knows better. He stretches out for a nap. And suddenly, Mount Tai looms up right there in his bed. And the grindstone takes a hike home, climbing Mount Tai with every step. And best of all, uh, for me, is the beauty of their interaction and their relationship. Occupying their separate conditions and their separate spheres of activity, Guishan and the grindstone are completely and utterly in accord with one another. The literature doesn't say, but we could imagine that this is their last meeting. Maybe they never see each other again. 
but it doesn't matter. They cannot help but see each other again, always. Just as you will see uh, the people who matter in your life, always. When we have full confidence uh, in this reality, then nothing whatsoever is ever lacking or missing. Even our anguish, even our suffering, is complete as it is and is perfectly fine. Uh, Commenting on this story, uh, Zen teacher Pat O'Hara, who's from the village Zendo in New York City, she says, The grindstone shows what cannot be said, demonstrates the shifting truth of boundlessness penetrated by ordinary time and space. She leaves with her body much as Guishan sprawls with his. Form is emptiness. Emptiness, form. A perfectly balanced Padadu. One can imagine Grindstone's laugh as she left and the smile on Guishan's face as he sprawled at his ease, having been visited by the great grinder. <laughs> so that's Pat's uh, wonderful commentary to the story. So that's what I wanted to say tonight. Thank you for listening. I think we have probably a, a little time. Yeah, maybe we have 10 or 15 minutes if people have uh, comments, questions. Don't, don't ask me if Zen believes in reincarnation, though. <laughs> and if you, if you have a question, I'll repeat the question so everybody can hear it. Somebody said, are you happy with your car? Is that right? Is that, is that what you said? Yes. Yes, I am. Although it's uh, very busy driving the car because of all the computer. You'd think that I would just turn it off, right? But no. <laughs> yes. Yes, so you're talking about uh, when I put my my robe, my okasa, on top of my head. Yes. Um, well, uh, this is a, a the, this okasa is a, a robe that you receive um, when you become ordained as a Zen priest. And you, uh, in our tradition anyway, you, you sew the robe. You you actually get a big piece of cloth, and you cut it into st- pieces 
and then you sew the pieces back together again in a very particular way. It takes quite a while. And then you receive it in the ceremony. And then there are smaller ones that, like Julie's was wearing, I guess isn't now, that are also worn. And uh, it's like, you know, in all religions, there's vestments and sacred garments. And the okesa is understood as Buddha's own robe. The idea is that you're putting on Buddha's own robe. You're sewing and wearing and receiving Buddha's own robe. So you wear it with a sense of sacredness. And uh, you feel like um, when you wear it, that uh, you feel like you're in Buddha's family. And so you better watch out and be careful and, and be nice to people and take care of yourself because you're wearing Buddha's robe, and you wouldn't be doing that, slouching around, scratching yourself, doing bad things. You know, you wouldn't do that. So it helps, it helps you to, uh, wearing Buddha's robe helps you if, you if you wear it. I mean, we typically don't wear it all the time, but we wear it in meditation and giving talks and in retreats and that sort of thing. And wearing the robe is actually, uh, it's the one practice that priests do that lay people don't do, wear this kind of big robe. Other than that, the practice is exactly the same and the precepts are the same. So wearing the, the robe is an important practice uh, for an ordained priest and all that it makes you feel inside. So uh, there is a... Uh, uh, some, some people don't like ritual, you know, religious <coughs> trappings and ritual. And uh, I think that's pretty understandable since uh, religious... Uh, um, establishments have done so many bad things, you know what I mean? Not only to individuals, but culturally and socially, so many terrible things that it's not a mystery that people would have an allergy to religion or dislike of it. So there's no surprise there. And whatever animosity religion receives from people is unfortunately, you know, well-deserved. So I don't blame anybody for not liking religion and ritual. But when you think about it for a little while, you have to think, well, throughout history, in most cultures, in most places, people have practiced religions and they have participated in these kind of rituals. And it really just cannot be the case that all these people are stupid and have been duped. Now, to be sure, there could be a certain amount of that in, involved. But... It can't be. It just can't be. that. And sometimes if you go to places where you see sincere religious practice going on, you, you, you feel you know, people's sincerity in their hearts. And that comes from, it's fostered and, and, and enhanced by different ritual um, elements in the religion. And so for us in Zen practice, the robe is one of the main religious ritual items that we, that we practice with. So uh, I have a great respect, you know, for, for wearing Buddha's robe, and I appreciate being a part of Buddha's family as an ordained person, and, and it makes a difference to me. Uh, and I'm glad that our tradition has that. So there you go. That's why. Now, uh, you know, I could come here and not wear my robe, because you wouldn't care because right? most of the teachers here don't wear robes or anything. But um, I appreciate wearing it 
and I and it, it it's better for me when I give a talk because if I if I give a talk and I'm not wearing the robe, then it seems like I'm giving a talk. Well, why would anybody? Well, who am I to give a talk, and why would anybody? I wouldn't want to make anybody listen to me give a talk. You know, why? You could be doing something else. But if I put on my robe, I feel like well, I put on my robe and I bow, and I give a talk in the in the name of Buddha or in the in the in the spirit of Buddha. So I'm doing it in in and with Buddha. It's not just me. I feel I feel that. Maybe you don't feel that, but I I feel that. So it helps me to put on the robe. I like to wear the robe, and when I give a talk, I wouldn't want to give a Buddhist talk without doing that. Although I do things without robes, I'm not always wearing robes, but it makes a difference. That was a pretty long-winded answer to a pretty simple question. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, in case you ever get stuck in traffic. <laughs> yeah, so his question was, uh, what, what, what state of mind was, uh, how did I cope with the, all the stress and anxiety that I must be having sitting in traffic knowing that I'm going to be very late uh, for the talk? One time... Uh, I was an hour and a half late here because an electrical wire fell down over the road in Fairfax. And, and uh, there was a traffic jam pretty much from my house all the way to Spirit Rock. And I was an hour and a half late. But it turned out that so were a lot of the people coming to the talk, so it didn't matter that much. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that I had a wonderful time. And it didn't bother me at all. Because I was regretful that I was going to be late. I knew I was going to be late. But it didn't take me long to realize that there was absolutely nothing that I could do about it. Nothing whatsoever. So why would I worry about it? Because if I'm worried about it, worried about something that I can do nothing about, and then I show up here all frazzled and worried when I'm supposed to be you know, giving a Dharma talk, and then you're all seeing me being frazzled and worried, then I'm this, like, what good is that? Plus, my brother-in-law gave me a CD of uh, George Gershwin <laughs> music. And George Gershwin actually is a pretty good uh, composer. Yes. Yeah. So I had uh, 67, 67 minutes of George Gershwin I, I drove five miles in that 67 minutes, more or less. <laughs> but uh, there were some of the music I, w I knew, and so it's wonderful to hear music that you know, right? To hear it again when you haven't heard it in a long time. And some of the music I didn't know at all, and it was wonderful. So I had a great time, and I was very happy. And I, and I, knew, and I, and I knew that um, it would be fine when I got here. What would, ha what would happen? Like, what was going to happen? It would be fine. I knew it would be fine. E even if I didn't show up at all, it would be fine. Everybody will be fine without me. So I, it, it didn't bother. And I always feel that way when I'm in traffic. When you're in traffic, you can't do anything about it. So you might as well enjoy yourself. 
it's nice. You can be all by yourself and you can sort of see what you're thinking. And what am I thinking now? I wonder what I'm thinking. So, yeah. That's a good policy, right? When there's nothing you can do about something that's happening, why don't you just surrender to it and enjoy it? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, uh, why don't, since she started talking, she can talk and then you next. Yeah, please go ahead. You're pretty new to Buddhism. Go ahead, please. different kinds of traditions in Buddhism, and how do you choose the right one? Well, I, I would say, go, do what you're doing tonight. Go to different places, and see how it feels to you. Trust your feeling more than anything else. If you feel like that, that I, I felt happy there. I felt good. I liked the people. I liked the teachings. Uh, it seemed like a good place. Uh, I'll go back. And then you can try to go to different places, and you'll f probably you'll feel, this place feels really good. This place, not so much for me. So, like that. Intuitive, you know? Oh, boy. Buddhist traditions? Oh, so many. Here, uh, this is the Bay Area. Probably has more Buddhist traditions going on, available to you, personally to you, than any other time... No, honestly, any other time and place in history. Because if you were in China before, you couldn't do Korean Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism if you were in China. You could only do Chinese Buddhism. But now you can do all different ones, so it's wonderful. And you can do even several at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yes, uh, about death, yeah. You're not sick, are you? I'm very well, thank you. You're well, oh, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, yes, isn't that the problem? <laughs> yes, I think, uh, and, uh, and, uh, I think actually you're better off knowing that you feel like death is a bad idea and you're not, uh, that you don't like it, than you would be if you just simply forgot about it. 
because uh, that that's it's it's the it's the knowing that that death is actually unavoidable, and that it is uh, a tremendous loss that gives you the motivation to really devote yourself to spiritual life. So that's actually a good thing that you have. I think every human being has it, but for many of us, uh, the, the, the thought is so buried underneath t- tons of denial that we never even notice it. So it's a blessing that you have that problem. But it, having that problem, you do have to address it, and, and that's where spiritual practice uh, comes in. And with spiritual practice over time in a serious way, I think you come to realize that um, you know death is a great joining. Uh, that that the loss involved in death is an index of our love. Because we're human and because we love, we experience loss. And and that's beautiful. That loss is actually beautiful. You realize, and then you realize that. Uh, giving up your body and your mind and joining uh, everything when it's time, not before then, but when it's time, is, is a good thing. It's happy. Uh, the, the Buddha, you know, uh, passes on in Parinirvana uh, peacefully, happy to give up the burden of the body when the time comes. And so to get from, this is making me crazy, I'm really anxious about this, to it's okay. I know there's tears and I know there's loss, but it's okay. That's a lifetime's spiritual practice. You could almost say that the only reason there's any religion at all and any spiritual practice at all is because we all know that we have to really prepare for this. And one way or another, we, we, do, we, we do do it. And that's why there is religion. So nurture that anxiety and turn it into motivation for practice. So one last question. I know you have been have your hand up, so. Yes. Uh, this is a quick story about uh, attitude. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, he is saying this, but I am standing up straight. <laughs> <laughs> Great story, but I am standing up straight. Well, let's all stand up straight and go forth. Thank you very much for listening and for coming to Spirit Rock. Please support Spirit Rock. Come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.